Welcome to Daniel's Bible Church. If you were following along with the scripture reading in the bulletin, for clarity, the reference is correct. Uh, My passage was Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. I'm not sure what happened, but verse 14 um, seems to have been cut off in the bulletin. So, I am sometimes forced to marvel at the way that God coordinates events, coordinates themes, particularly as they relate to a worship service. Um, That passage and that idea of God's proclamation, I am who I am, has already come up a couple of times today, if you were with us for the Sunday school hour, and we will come back to it. That is the main point and the main idea from our scripture reading that I wanted you to take away. So um, for clarity, that, that verse is supposed to be in there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we have just considered and, and as has come up a number of times this morning, you are. We gather together this morning understanding that reality. It's such a simple statement in English, three letters, but what a profound reality that you have given us. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning again, that you would give me clear thinking, clear speech, that you would help me to fulfill the responsibility of passing on uh, to those who are here a clear understanding of your word. Father, we gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We rejoice in his name and in his work, and we offer our humble worship to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a concept in modern social commentary. It most often comes up in terms of feminism or discussions of radical feminism. And it is called the wall. Unfortunately, it is not often discussed with much compassion. It should be. But the wall refers to a moment of clarity when someone suddenly realizes that they want something they have spent their whole life either ignoring or avoiding or maybe even working against. In the context of feminism, it usually goes like this. There's a woman who reaches, say, her late 30s, maybe her 40s, and it starts to sink in that she has still not found a good man. It it strikes her that she wants to be married, to have a few kids, maybe have a quiet life. The high speed of the career that she has spent her life building maybe is starting to get tiring. But unfortunately, good traditional family men don't agree with her values or her priorities. And they may even be turned off by her personality, depending on her zeal for her feminism. Her looks aren't getting her as many dates as she used to. And the biological clock is winding down, as it were. You can go on YouTube or TikTok and find videos of women pouring their broken hearts into the camera, distraught, just in utter grief, because they have realized that they have probably missed an opportunity. 
for something that you and I understand is an incredible blessing. A faithful spouse, children, peace in life. It is genuinely heartbreaking to see these videos on the internet. This sermon is not about feminism. For men, it might look like the same thing in reverse. Maybe maybe a man has spent too much time playing the field and now more conservative or traditional women are not as, not interested in him. It might be the moment that a dad realizes that he has missed his children growing up. He spent his life working or he was always gone fishing or whatever the preoccupation may be, he realizes his children are grown and there's not much relationship there. I'm not going to bury the lead this morning. I have entitled this message, The Inevitable Reality of Christ, because Jesus is simultaneously the thing that so many people are missing in their lives, and he is the wall. Our passage today is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It is a very straightforward historical narrative It's a birth announcement. It's more than that, but in essence, it's a birth announcement. But there are elements, three elements of this passage that I want to draw your attention to in order to help you grasp the seriousness of the wall, this inevitable reality that every one of us is going to have to contend with sooner or later. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, the first point that we need to contend with this morning is the reality of Jesus's birth. The reality of Jesus's birth. Again, this is a birth announcement. We can see it in verse Verses 18 and 25, very straightforward. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Number one, Jesus was a real historical man. Last time I preached to you, we saw in verses 1 through 17 the genealogy of Jesus tracing his lineage all the way back to David. One of the hallmarks of a real life is the impact that it has on others. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus' disciples ask him, Lord, is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And Jesus says, mind your business. But the point there is that Jesus influenced other people and they had expectations, not just for what God was going to do in history, but for what Jesus was going to do. It's hard to have expectations from somebody who does not exist. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 4 through 8, Paul says that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared first to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then to other disciples, and then to 500 other people at one time. And last of all, as one untimely born, he says, he appeared to me. Paul also draws attention to the fact that most of those 500 witnesses at the time are still alive. I was in high school the first time that I heard the assertion, Jesus never existed. That's a small movement, I believe. Most people who, um, who are academically honest do not hold that view. But it's out there. It is absurd on its face. Jesus is a real man who existed in real history. In fact, compared with other historical figures, Homer, for example, the famed author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, there are those who question whether Homer was a real person. Well, in comparison to such figures, uh, the evidence for Christ's reality is, is overwhelming. But more than being just a, a historical man who existed in real history, Jesus is the Christ. Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Now, I'm sure you know Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title. It's the Greek equivalent of the Jewish or the, the Hebrew word Messiah. It's God's anointed one. So Matthew comes out and directly asserts that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one of God going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus is the Christ according to the testimony of the apostles. Matthew here, when, Peter, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Jesus is the Christ according to prophecy. Conservatively speaking, Jesus fulfills at least 300 prophecies that are recorded in the Old Testament during his earthly ministry. Alfred Edersheim counts 456 Old Testament verses that refer to Messiah or to his times that are applicable to Jesus Christ. By God's testimony, we see in verses 20 to 23, an angel of God appears to Joseph in a dream and says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is of God. It is also evidenced by his miraculous birth. We'll get into that again in a moment. So not only is Jesus a real historical man, but Jesus is the Christ. And more than that, Matthew gives us three hints here that Jesus is actually more than a man. The first hint that he gives us is in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. It has to do with that word birth. Now, I know you thought we were done with genealogies, but we're not quite finished here. 
Because that word that is translated birth in verse 18 is the word, the Greek word genesis. Which even if I just leave that hanging in the Greek, I'm sure you recognize has something to do with origins. Um, in this case, birth is a good translation. The, this account that we're getting into is clearly about the birth of Jesus Christ. But I want to point out to you that this word genesis in verse 18 is the same word that Matthew uses in verse 1 when he says the record of the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew's choice of words here creates a clear parallel between verses 1 through 17 where Matthew records Jesus' human royal lineage and verses 18 to 25 where Matthew records his divine lineage. We get a hint of that here. Not only is Jesus' lineage divine, but in verse 21 we can see that his role is divine. Now when the Jews were waiting for hundreds of years for their Messiah, for the Christ to come. The situation developed such that the Romans moved in, subjugated Israel, and they were in control. And the Jews believed that the Christ would come, sit on the throne of David, start a war with Rome, and overthrow the Roman oppressors. Now, who could do that? Just about anybody. If you take a brief survey of the book of Judges, you can see Gideon was a bit of a coward. Samson was a bit of a self-absorbed, self-indulgent renegade. God uses all kinds of people to throw off Israel's enemies. But the claim that the angel gives to Joseph here is not, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from the Romans. The claim is, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who can do that? There's no man that can do that. That requires something more. Only God can forgive sins, and the Jews knew that very well. Jesus' origin is divine, his role is divine, and we see his nature is divine. Twice, Matthew says, that Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 23, the angel points to the prophet Isaiah to say, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus himself is God with us. Now there will be objections. There will be those who say, well, surely this is not real history. How do you make something like this objectionable? How do you make it easy to dismiss? There are basically two methods. Number one, yeah, you make it impossible. Now, we here in the 21st century have science. We understand that a virgin birth is impossible. This can't happen because it can't happen. We know better. Well, Allow me to point out that in the first century, the Jews also understood where babies come from. They weren't confused. This was as radical a claim in the first century as it is today. So if Matthew is going to seriously assert this anyway, then we have to contend with that assertion. Somebody makes a, a, 
an absurd claim. We might laugh at it at first, but if they continue to make this assertion with a straight face, and then you have Luke come along and make the same assertion, and John alludes to the virgin birth, there comes a point where we have to say, wait a minute, you're serious, aren't you? And if we are going to say, no, this can't be the case, then we need better evidence than, well, we just know this can't be the case. I will point to Sarah, Genesis 15, verse 4, and Genesis 18, 12 to 14. Sarah was an old woman. She was barren. And at 90 years old, God gave her a son. In the next generation, Isaac married Rebekah, who was barren. And God gave her twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had a bit of a mess of a marital life, but Rachel, his favorite wife, was barren. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Hannah, another woman, cried out to the Lord. She was barren, and the Lord gave her a son, Samuel. Samson's mother, whose name we are not given in Judges, was barren, and the Lord gave her a son. Elizabeth, Mary's relative, had John the Baptist, her son, in her old age. If we are going to come with the claim that these things don't happen, we are going to have to contend with the fact that many times in Scripture, God gave miraculous births. And we might just ask, is anything impossible with God? If we're going to object to this kind of narrative, we might try making it impossible. But that doesn't seem to work. On the other hand, we might try to make it so common as to be absurd. I first learned about parthenogenesis in Rapid City, South Dakota, at a place called Reptile Gardens. It's a big reptile zoo. We went several years ago and took the kids, and there is one particular exhibit where they had uh, a very large python, and there's an interesting plaque next to this python that said, uh, this particular python, whose name escapes me, um, had been bred in captivity, had been raised in isolation all its life, and a few years ago, or several years ago now, had given birth. They had no explanation for it. It had experienced this parthenogenesis, asexual reproduction in a creature that typically requires a sexual partner. In honeybees, unfertilized eggs develop into drones or males. It's called parthenogenesis. Artificial parthenogenesis has been successful with unfertilized eggs from silkworms and from rabbits. So we might appeal to these instances and say, see, this isn't impossible. It's just a weird thing that we can't explain. And so Jesus' birth, as weird as it is, was sort of unnaturally natural. Or we might appeal to mythology. The Romans believed that Zeus impregnated Semele without contact and that she conceived Dionysus. The Babylonians believed that Tammuz was conceived in the priestess Semiramis by a sunbeam. Buddha's mother supposedly saw a great white elephant enter her belly at his conception, and Hinduism has claimed that Vishnu, after reincarnations as a fish, a tortoise, a boar, 
and a lion descended into the womb of Devaki and was born as her son Krishna. There's a legend that Alexander the Great was virgin born by the power of Zeus. And in Star Wars, Anakin Skywalker is conceived by the power of the force. See, it's just fiction. It's all just legend. We still have it today, even in Star Wars. Well, I will point out to you that this account is not like the excesses of mythology or the absurdities of Star Wars. This is a straightforward historical narrative. It names names. It gives details. It presents witnesses. And so we cannot escape the reality that Jesus Christ is a real person in real history, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, by the testimony of Matthew and Luke and John and all of his disciples and many, many witnesses. And so let's consider for a moment the implications of Jesus' birth. First of all, if you are a Jew in the first century, the implications of Jesus' birth are that God is speaking again. God had been silent to the Jews for 400 years, and then suddenly John the Baptist comes on the scene, the first prophet in four centuries. And John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ, I'm just the forerunner to the Christ. And then Christ comes onto the scene, and John points to him. And so God is speaking again, so we'd better start listening. Number two, not to restate the obvious, but it means... The Christ has come. The Christ, the Messiah, whom God presented all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, from the perspective of the first century Jews 4,000 years ago. Over that, obviously, for us. Now, if you are a Jew in the first century, you're probably waiting for a king who would come and throw off those oppressive Romans, like I said. And Jesus clearly didn't do that. He didn't sit on David's throne. He didn't start a war with Rome. And so if we are reading this gospel or hearing it preached in the first century as Jews, we need to reevaluate our understanding of Christ, of Messiah. Now, let me ask you this. Which sounds better to you, a free country or freedom from your sins? That sounds like a loaded question here in 21st century America. But think about that deeply. That's not to say that Christ is not going to establish the Davidic kingdom. That's still coming. But the Jews got the Christ wrong, not because they expected too much from him, but because they thought too little of him. They expected an earthly kingdom. That part is still coming. Another implication, God has come down to his people. Verse 23, he shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. I was thinking of the truth seekers. A few years ago, they did their study on the names of God. El Shaddai, God Almighty, is present among men. El Elyon, my Redeemer lives. Adonai, my Lord. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Yahweh, I am. The God who spoke the world into existence has come down in the form of a man to be present with his people. The God who flooded the entire world as a judgment on man's wickedness 
but in his grace and mercy spared eight people and two of every land-dwelling, air-breathing animal on an ark who founded the nation of Israel by making a one-way covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob to be their God and to bless the world through them, who destroyed Egypt, the most powerful nation in the known world, in order to bring the Israelites, his people, out of slavery and into the land that he had promised to Abraham. The God who provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, who gave the Mosaic law to Israel and promised everlasting faithfulness to them. The God who drove out the Canaanites before Israel and established them in the land, who chastised Israel for their unfaithfulness, but raised up judges to deliver them from their oppressors when they repented. The God who blessed and prospered and built up Israel under David and Solomon, who when Israel strayed sent them prophets for a thousand years to exhort them to repent and turn back to him. That God has come down in the form of a man to be with his people. So the last implication that I want you to consider this morning is that every one of us has a choice to make. We have to respond to the reality of Jesus Christ. And on that note, let's consider Joseph's response. Every one of us can recognize that Joseph, at least at first, had an apparent problem. He was engaged to this woman, and before they came together, Mary was found to be with child. Now, this is a legal problem because in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 20 to 24, the prescription for unfaithfulness is stoning. But Joseph is a righteous man. He's a compassionate man. He wants to show mercy toward Mary. Rather than pursuing capital punishment, which was not often carried out in the first century anyway, but even even beyond that, he didn't want to expose her to public humiliation. Interestingly, we may see this compassion of Joseph's come out in Matthew's own calling, Matthew chapter 9. Let me just read this to you briefly. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What a remarkable testimony that it seems likely that Joseph passed on to his son, Jesus. But not only is this a legal problem, it's a personal problem. Joseph has been embarrassed. It appears that he's been sinned against. And from a social perspective, even if Joseph loves Mary and wants to follow through on marrying her, to do so would appear to be an admission of guilt for him. So there's a problem. Fortunately, Deuteronomy also provides for this quiet divorce that Joseph ultimately settles on. But Joseph comes to a confrontation with the word of God. An angel appears to him clearly in a dream. 
He was not confused about what happened. He didn't wonder whether it was real. Verse 24 tells us Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. The angel addresses Joseph, son of David. Seems to have been giving Joseph context. And we can see the connection between son of David and verses 1 through 17. There's some disagreement on whether verses 22 and 23 were a part of the angel's proclamation or whether they are a part of Matthew's commentary. Greek doesn't have quotation marks, and in the original documents it doesn't have punctuation or even spaces between words. So verses 22 and 23, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So it may be the angel spoke these words and again is giving Joseph comfort and context for what is going on here. Or it may just be Matthew's commentary that he has added in. Either way, the response is the same. Joseph gets up and obeys the word of God. As we consider the historical circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus, it's interesting to note Joseph's change of mind. He had decided to divorce Mary already, and this is no small thing. It would have required a certificate of divorce, public embarrassment for him and for her, those uncomfortable, sympathetic looks from his friends. But something changed his mind. According to Matthew, it was divine revelation. This text is a straightforward historical narrative. It's a birth announcement, like I said. Having heard it, we are now responsible for it. And we are responsible for what we do with it. You can try to ignore it, but in our modern Western culture, you cannot escape Jesus. As one commenter puts it, he split time in half. We live in terms of B.C. and A.D. All of our calendar is in relation to Jesus Christ. Sure, there's a movement trying to get rid of the B.C.A.D. designator. B.C.E., before Common Era, and C.E., Common Era. It's an absurd terminology. The only thing we have in common with people in the first century is our relationship to Jesus Christ in terms of time. Coincidentally, I saw an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson this past week in which he discussed this very issue. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the famous atheist and physicist, does not ascribe to the BCE and CE designators. He says it's absurd to try to take away the most accurate calendar ever devised from the Christians just because they're associated with Christ. It's as arbitrary and foolish as saying that Jesus never existed. They may change the language, but they cannot change what is. Jesus was born a real man in real history. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and a virgin in first century Israel. Because of his divine heritage, he was born with no sin nature from Adam. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the will of God. And because he lived and preached righteousness, he came into conflict with the Jewish authorities. They conspired against him, arrested him in the middle of the night, 
held a sham trial in which they convicted him of capital crimes he did not commit. And because they did not have the authority to execute him, they changed the charges when they turned him over to the Romans. Jesus was crucified by a Roman governor who admitted Jesus' innocence, but he didn't want to risk upsetting the Jews and causing a riot. Jesus stayed in the grave for three days, and then he got back up again, and he started appearing, first to Peter, then to the twelve, then to 500 at once, then to many others, and Luke says, with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. And all of this within the divine, sovereign plan of God, so that Jesus would die the perfect, atoning lamb, the blood sacrifice on our behalf, so that we could be redeemed from the curse of sin and reconciled to God through him. In our scripture reading for this morning, Moses is wandering through the desert. He's tending his father-in-law's sheep, and he sees something strange, something unusual. It's a bush that's on fire, but it isn't being burned up. It's not going away. And he says to himself, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. I need to go get a closer look. I need to see what's different about this bush than every other bush that would be gone by now. Why doesn't it go away? And what Moses finds on closer inspection is the presence of the living God. The God who calls himself, I am who I am. God is an inevitable reality that we are all on a direct flight to. This is your burning bush. This is a strange thing that all of us should see and think to ourselves. I need to take a closer look at this. What's different about this thing? Sure, there are those who will say that this is just a religious text like any other religious text. I can tell you with supreme confidence those are people who don't know this book. You can't know the Bible and say that it's the same as any other book. In this, you will find the presence of the living God. God cannot be separated from his word. Now, there are those who will say, yeah, sure, Jesus existed, but he never claimed to be God. I offer you two citations this morning. Turn to John chapter 4. I'm sure you know this story. John is in Samaria, sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman. Goes back and forth with her a little bit. She's sort of feeling out who this man is. John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. After a while, the woman kind of gives up on the conversation. She says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. He'll clear all these things up. Jesus said to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I hope you will bear with me for a very brief grammar, Greek grammar lesson. In English, we have subjects and we have verbs. In Greek, the subject is implied in the verb. So the Greek verb, a me, 
doesn't just mean am. It means I am. And the construction that Jesus uses here in verse 26 is not just a me, I am. It's the pronoun ego, which means I, the verb a me, which means I am. Literally, it is I, I am. Now, we don't translate it that way. But what it means is an emphatic assertion. Jesus is emphasizing the subject when he says, ego, a me. It's I myself am. Jesus is asserting in this passage the same thing that God asserts to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am. And we might be caught up in the language here and say, oh, well, maybe that's not very clear. But let's turn over a few chapters to Genesis, excuse me, to John chapter 8. We have a similar instance. John chapter 8, verses 57 and 58. Jesus has had a confrontation with his opponents. And the Jews said to him, starting in verse 57, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, ego a me. It's the same words. And if you are wondering whether this confirms that Jesus is asserting his divinity here and whether that's a real connection between this passage and Exodus chapter 3, look at the response of the Jews, verse 59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They understood exactly what he was saying. And they were going to execute him according to the Mosaic law for blasphemy. If you have not wrestled with these things, if you have not come to terms with the existence and the implications and the reality of Jesus Christ, friends, you are careening toward the wall. Jesus said, not even the Father judges anyone, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus died for you. And you will stand in front of him someday and account for whether you trust him to save you or not. And so will I. Believe him. Trust him to save you from your sins and submit your life to obedience to Christ before you hit the wall. Because like it or not, sooner or later, we must all contend with the inevitable reality of Christ. Heavenly Father, We're humbled by this text. Again, by the reality that you sent your son to become like us so that in him we might be reconciled to you. Father, we acknowledge to you this morning that we, as has been said earlier, are not what we should be. We all fall short. We're all sinners. But we rejoice this morning in the reality that in Christ, you make us what we should be. We look forward to the day that you will remove all sin from us. Father, I thank you for this time that we have had together. I pray for each one of us that you would convict us of these things. And that if there are any here who do not know your son, Jesus Christ, as their own Lord and Savior, that you would bring them to terms with this reality soften hearts, and bring us to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.